Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, with the region's appalling response to the weather chaos Tuesday night, is it time for a Metro Vancouver snow summit? Plus, from new strata rules to a federal foreign buyer's tax, we discuss the chaos coming to BC's real estate industry. And Vancouver Park Board Chair Scott Jensen joins us to discuss bike lanes to no Christmas train to alcohol consumption in parks. And we look back at Team Canada's performance at the World Cup. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's talk about the transportation chaos from Tuesday's snowstorm that uh, paralyzed major thoroughfares and bridges in Metro Vancouver. Now, some motors were stranded in their cars for up to 12 hours uh, around Highway 91, uh, around the Alex Fraser, uh, once the Alex Fraser Bridge was shut down by numerous crashes and spun out vehicles. Other key connectors, Portman Bridge, the Patello Bridge and the Massey Tunnel, all experienced lane closures and struggle to cope with these snowy conditions. Of course, the impacts on people, families, businesses were significant. We received many calls on this issue on this show and all our shows yesterday. Here's one caller, Anthony, calling us from Burnaby uh, about our response. We have to be more proactive, and it comes down to personal responsibility. I mean, I've got an SUV with four-wheel drive and snow tires, and I've got enough water and food in the car to go overnight and a blanket. So I'm, I'm prepared. Most people are not prepared. They don't have the right tires. They don't, they're not prepared for winter conditions. And a lot of people yesterday got caught with their pants down. Now, on the social impact side, I work in a hospital where today we're 100 patients over and we're understaffed. Oh. A lot of staff couldn't make it to work because they didn't get home until midnight or later last night. And most of us have to drive across the bridge to get to work because of the cost of real estate in Vancouver. Yeah. So if you look at the situation here, so surgeries are delayed, patient care is delayed, emerges are overloaded. So there is impact on people not being prepared. And then when I look at all the cars yesterday, all the expensive uh, Mercedes with super low profile tires, the Teslas that are all spun out. I'm looking at all these expensive cars out there with these super race tires. They're not prepared for, for Vancouver weather. That was Anthony from Burnaby. So many others of you, of course, called frustrated residents, angry residents in the lower mainland because of the poor response uh, collectively by the region. Of course, some blame the provincial government. Other, others blame specific municipalities. Others, as you heard from Anthony, blame motorists and their poor driving or not even having winter tires. The impact, of, of course, from all of this has, has prompted calls from municipal officials for a regional meeting on the problem. One of those advocating for a snow summit is Councillor Daniel Fontaine of New Westminster. He joins us now. Daniel, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. So uh, were you, first of all, impacted by the uh, the snowstorm or were you one of those lucky folks that uh, were able to stay home or, or didn't have to deal, or didn't have to commute uh, great lengths? Yeah, I was very fortunate. I was working from home, so I was uh, kind of able to walk or to make very short commute that day. So but I did it did offer me the opportunity because I was at home to watch on social media and just kind of watching the whole thing unfold, uh, you know, hour after hour as people were reporting on Twitter and on Facebook and other social media that they were effectively trapped on these highways and in their cars for, as you said, a period of up to 12 hours. Uh, uh, something that I have not seen in the 30-plus years that I've lived here. I've never seen anything like it in terms of the effective shutdown of uh, pretty much all of the major bridges in the lower mainland, which was uh, just unprecedented. Um Perhaps blame is too harsh a term, but maybe it's the right term. I don't know. What? What? Who, where would you point the finger? 
Well, you know, I've been asked that today in the last couple of days is who's to blame. And I think I, my focus is more on kind of what happened, um, who was responsible for what and who should be held accountable for uh, ultimately what happened. And and I think when we talk about accountability, there's obviously accountability of, of government, municipal government, provincial government, but also personal accountability as well. As your previous caller mentioned, there's a lot of people who simply um, did not have the proper uh, gear, the tires or weren't perhaps prepared. So there is a, a combination of factors happening here, but I, ultimately as a civic leader in, in this region, mm-hmm. I have a lot of questions around how prepared we were, were the tow trucks ready, uh, why we didn't use perhaps our emergency response system through our cell phones to, to communicate messages. I have a ton of questions, and I think we're best to ask those very soon while all the civic officials who were involved and the provincial officials on this um, it's fresh in their mind, and that's why we called for the Snow Summit. Councillor Linda Annis and I are both requesting Councillor Annis from Surrey, and obviously her community was was impacted um, as badly as, as as most in the community. And I think we we deserve to to have that summit and deserve some answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, before we get to sort of personal responsibility, just look at, look at the issue of of. Um of clearing snow. When I was looking at this yesterday, and I was I was stuck for about eight hours trying to get home. I got home at about four in the morning. So, uh, Councillor uh, Linda Annis beats me. I think she was about nine hours plus. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I've always asked myself one question: What do other cities do? Forget about snow for a moment. In regards to clearing accidents and moving them to the side, getting traffic moving, are there best practices uh, uh, mm-hmm. to look at? The other issue, of course, is just snow removal. You've got um, a variety of municipalities responsible for their region, of course. And then you got the provincial government responsible for the highways. Is that response too balkanized? Uh, would, I think would be another one. And I guess the third one, one could argue, especially with the Massey Tunnel, which I had to deal with, was mm-hmm. if we had a ten-lane bridge, we, you know, you, perhaps you could have kept one lane open. You had five lanes one way. Perhaps you could have opened one to get at least traffic moving rather than just being at a standstill um, for a, for an hour. How much of do you think this is just to do with our balkanized governance structure? We got different municipalities looking at things differently, and that layer that with a provincial government on top. Do you think that's mm-hmm. part of the issue as well? I think, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd be blind if you thought that that wasn't a factor. I, I mean, I, I, that's what I think part of this regional summit and this regional gathering is all about, is just to try to determine the actual factors versus us kind of theorizing as to what yeah. happened. I can tell you that you've touched on a lot of things that, that I have questions about. And, and when you look at what uh, were the choke points and the areas that really went down the hardest, and they were... The bridges, uh, primarily those that are responsibility of the province, as well as the on-ramps and off-ramps to those bridges and those highways. And yes, there were problems in municipalities. I'm, I'm not denying that. There were significant problems in some municipalities, especially those with a lot of hills. But for me, I'd like to get all the people inside a room. I want TransLink. I want BC Ambulance. I want the civic officials, Ministry of Transportation. And I think it should be a public meeting. We should gather the the experts, the subject matter experts, the people who are on the front line, as well as make a call for the public to give their feedback as to how they were impacted and what they saw like you did and Councillor Annis. What did you guys see and, and what, what could be done differently? And I don't think this is rocket science. It's just getting people in the same room who've had uh, have some responsibility to make sure these roads operate. And that's what people expect of us as civic officials and provincial ministry of transportation, that when we get a storm, that for the most part, we can try to cope with it. And what I saw this week, we did not do a good job. It, no. I mean, there's a lot of, and I, I want to be careful in that the first responders and those people who did their best in the conditions, I want to applaud them for that. But in terms of the overall response that we did in this region, I, I 
think we had we had a fail. Yeah, you know, I, I was I had a friend um, who lives in Ladner. I had to go pick up his wife at the airport. And she arrived at seven thirty, uh, and uh, ended up uh, um, taking the SkyTrain to the River Rock, but there was no rooms to stay there. No rooms in Richmond mm-hmm. that she could find. No taxis, any of that. And it kind of reminds you that this is still um, twenty centimeters of snow blowing through the area. This isn't an earthquake or an atmospheric river no. that could have significant challenges. Number one, the other issue and completely different from what I was saying in regards to the hotels is we talk about winter tires and we talk about other things they can do. There's a bit of, or, or work from home. First of all, you can work from home. I can work from home. We're actually blessed that way. But mm-hmm. other people, a lot of jobs, you can't work from home. If you've got to bag groceries, you've got to be at the grocery store. You actually have Correct. to be there, number one. And then people say, well, winter tires. It makes sense for me. Uh, I, I, I live in a, a single-family home. I can store the winter tires. If you're living in a 600-square-foot condo in Vancouver, where are you going to put those tires uh, during mm-hmm. the spring and summertime? So those are some practical things that we also have to look at when we some of the callers will call in and say, look, well, what about winter tires? Well, I guarantee you, uh, you probably live in a single-family home if you're talking about that. But if you're in a condo in Vancouver, Vancouver or Surrey, wherever it may be, you have no place to store that kind of stuff. So there is some legitimate <laughs> issues I think we have to touch on. We touched on some of it yesterday as well. If we can't deal with this, how are we going to deal with an earthquake? Well, no, an emergency preparedness is is um, obviously something of, of top of mind for me and as I'm sure many other civic officials in this area that when these types of events happen, it does you know beg the question, how are we prepared for a much larger and an emergency that will last much longer than we had this week. Because, it, as you know, if we get a, a major earthquake in the kind of 6.5, 7 or higher, this region is going to be... The bridges that we were talking about that were closed for, you know, 10, 12 hours will be closed potentially for weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what does that mean? Are we prepared? You know, are people prepared? And I think that it's it's a bigger discussion, and I think this offers us an opportunity to have that discussion and perhaps use the, the regional gathering that we have on this particular, um, uh, you know, gridlock situation we had to, to speak more broadly about how we are ready as a region. I heard Mayor Harvey this morning say that Anasis Island was effectively cut off. I mean, mm-hmm. there was no way to get on and off Anasis Island. I mean, these are significant and serious things. It's not not just a snowstorm, but... As I said to someone earlier today, there were literally tens of thousands of personal stories that happened, and many of them I'm sure we haven't heard about yet, Jazz, they haven't all called your show. But I can tell you that from what I've heard, people are not happy. They did not feel like um, this region responded appropriately, and as a result, I think we need answers. And that comes from actually bringing the people who potentially have those answers into the same room and that we have that discussion. Uh, Daniel, thank you for your time today, my friend. Thank you so much for having me on. Let's talk about real estate uh, just for a moment. Uh, it's been a challenging time for the real estate industry as rising interest rates are impacting the industry, but so are other policy changes. Recently, BC Premier David Eby announced new legislation to remove rental restrictions on strata properties. Um, the province estimates there are 300,000 units uh, did not permit rentals. There are approximately 2,900 empty condos that could not be rented right away because of strata rules, according to the government. government the province says its new rules will enable owners to rent out these homes Uh, immediately. On top of that, the federal government is introducing a two-year ban that will prohibit the purchase of residential property by non-Canadians, which will come into effect uh, in early January. So very uh, challenging times and tumultuous times. Joining us now to talk about this is Sarah Daniel. She's an author, broadcaster, and of course a real estate agent in South Surrey. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. 
Can you hear me? Yes, I can. There you go. Oh, there you go. Somebody did not press a button. Let's get them fired. (laughs) That's right. Well, let's talk about uh, the industry uh, for a moment. Uh, uh, You you predominantly focus on the South Surrey area, but you do sell in other parts of the Lower Mainland as well. Give me Mm -hmm. a sense of the mood in regards to real estate agents, in regards to not just the strata rules that have come in, the foreign buyer's tax. We'll get to get those specific policies. But also on top of that, you've got rising interest rates that are also impacting the industry. What's the mood in your industry right now? Well, it's a lot quieter, and that's not a bad thing at all. We certainly have seen a de- decrease in sales as well as new listings. So, I mean, for those people who are sort of thinking, okay, it's going to be a buffet of a selection. There's going to be so much out there that's not selling, so I can take my time and look whatever I want to. You can. You, you can take your time, but there's just not the inventory out there. Because of the way uh, mortgages are structured in Canada and because you have to you know, re- meet all sorts of stringent requirements to, to actually get one, there's not... I mean, as much as we're hearing people being stressed out because of uh, variable rates, et cetera, there's not a rush to the market of people selling. Um, so in, in, that, in that sense, it's, it's just a quieter market. Uh, we're not seeing the unconditional uh, subject-free offers that we did six, eight months ago. Mm-hmm. Prices have come down a little bit. So townhouses and condos in many areas are still uh, worth more than they were a year ago today. Houses, in particular, detached homes have seen their prices come down a bit. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the changes to the strata rules. Uh, Premier Eby and the NDP government announced new legislation to remove those rental restrictions on strata properties. I think the more you can, more more of a, or a bigger pool you can put into the rental market, it is it'll make it successful, easier for people. What impact is it having uh, on the real estate industry? So I listed a condo earlier this week, and it's listed at quite a low price in the in the mid 300s. It's a one bedroom condo with a solarium. Now the reason it's priced low is because the building itself will have upcoming assessments. So I have priced it to factor that into effect. Mm-hmm. The building also had a 19 plus age restriction and uh, no rentals. Now at the you know strike of a pen, those have been pretty much you know removed. So. Here's the thing is, the phone calls I'm getting to show this property, and I'm going to be showing it in an hour, and I've got showings booked all through the weekend, are not by people looking to purchase for themselves. They're people looking to purchase as an investment. On top of which, we've, I've actually had some young families inquire about it. Now, because of the ongoing assessments, I've suggested to their realtors that it might not be the best fit for them. Mm-hmm. But what we're seeing is people that want to invest. Here's, you know, you, you've now got all these buildings, older buildings, et cetera, that are opened up to um, the purchase by investors. Because the simple fact of the matter is a lot of, of owners, um, if they are in the position to rent out it, and they want to move, most likely are going to sell. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with being a landlord. You know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a tenant myself right now, but there are tenants that are not great. Um, there's maintenance that you still have to pay. Um, you know, if if a tenant, if you want to move back into the property, sometimes that that can be an issue. There's a lot of different things that go along with that. So a lot of owners, per se, do not want to be landlords. They just want to sell. What is happening right now, of course, is that the that pool of what you could purchase investor wise is now opened up to be all that much greater. And the perfect thing is for a lot of investors is that those properties are not currently tenanted, obviously, and so they can set that rental rate. So when an investor goes to purchase something with a tenant already there, if that tenant is paying a fairly low monthly rent, it's not as it's not as interesting to the investor. But here we have a whole bunch of stock that might come on the market for whatever reasons. The seller just selling because they're moving somewhere else, but the investor comes in. 
and they're able to charge a, a really hefty rent. So uh, what, what do you say to the argument that this, this all, all, potentially with this legislation, it does open up new places that can be rented out? It's, the, it's just the, the, the variety and the supply that is so very important at this particular point. What do you say to that argument? And I understand that. Here's the thing is, is there was no consultation within the real estate industry or anybody for that matter. There are strata councils right now. I mean, for instance, that, that listing I was just telling you about, the one that I listed this, this week, mm-hmm. it's a 19 plus building with, with uh, no rentals. Now, I've written in, I'm still showing on my listing that it has a 19 age uh, restriction and it is technically no rentals according to the bylaws. That means that I'm putting the onus, unfortunately, on the buyer and the buyer's agent to go and get legal uh, opinions as to whether it's okay for them to move in. Here's the thing is, do we know if the stratas are, that, who are going to, in many cases, be upset about this change in regulations? Are they going to class action suit against the provincial government? The other thing is to avoid this kind of sort of real estate speculation, which the government has seemed to be so intent on doing. And I mean, the underlying principle is a good one. Why wouldn't you talk to the real estate industry? I was just thinking today, wouldn't it make sense if you said instead of no rentals allowed, owners that had owned that property for two years or more would not be restricted from renting out that property? That means that an investor looking just to pick up something to quickly rent out would have to actually live in that property as an owner for two years before being able to rent it. It just makes it not, you know, these are the kind of things that will keep the prices relatively stable. I think that with opening up all these properties to the, uh, to the interest of, you know, investment buyers is actually going to push the prices up a little bit more. Sarah, let's talk a little bit about that. What impact do you think that's going to have on the market? Well, I mean, the interesting thing is we don't even know the full parameters of this yet. It hasn't been announced. So we don't know if it's going to be, again, like the areas that we have in the lower mainland that have the 20% tax currently. Um, And that would exclude Whistler and some vacation areas. Um, You know, there's obviously areas in the interior that are covered by this as well. Or whether it's going to be a blanket of all of Canada. We don't know. Apparently, according to uh, a newspaper article I was reading earlier today, Americans living in uh, border cities in Ontario have been snapping up uh, uh, vacation properties in Ontario with the idea of worrying about this ban coming into effect. And it's a two-year ban. I mean, that's it, two years. Um, And again, we, we still to this day do not know the details. But, I mean, I can't imagine that they're all of a sudden going to turn around and say, Whistler, you, you know, Americans can't buy in Whistler. You know, all, all these uh, vacation areas which are popular with, uh, with Americans. And then there's also the residual effect of how will the Americans take this? Will they turn around and say, well, you know what? If you are a snowbird, you can't buy in the United States for the next two years. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that, are, that follow through with this. Um, as far as foreign buyers are concerned, I mean, we brought in the foreign buyers tax in BC in 2016. It was it was pretty much dropped in without any warning. Mm-hmm. Uh, people that had purchased prior to the tax being announced were not grandfathered in. It created a lot of confusion. To me personally, it was a dog whistle because it was this fear of uh, East Asian buyers and them apparently, you know, ramping up the prices. The, the, the thing is what people forget is that there's a lot of Americans and a lot of uh, Brits and Australians and, and uh, South Asians and people from all over the world that come to Canada, work here with a work permit. They may not be a permanent resident. They like have permanent resident papers. They may not have Canadian citizenships, but they are paying taxes in Canada. And, I mean, a simple solution to all of this would have been 
if you're paying taxes and working in Canada, that you should be exempt. But these are the things that, unfortunately, they're kind of a dog whistle. They make they make the general public to a certain extent happy. But when you mm. start to scratch below the surface, you realize that it's it's pretty it's just a lot of fluff to make people happy. We've got a couple more minutes left. Uh, explain to me this uh, rescission period and, and what impact uh, that's having on the industry. <laughs> I, so, I guess that's so your official remark. <laughs> we, we, we had a, a call at my office the, recently. We had a, one of those Zoom calls, and I think it was the most popular Zoom call in, in God knows how many years since Zoom calls became a thing, um, because nobody really understands it. So, I mean, we do, but we don't. So the, the rescission period is basically that if uh, it was the idea was brought to the fore um, during the uh, during the hot markets of a, of a couple months back, like, like six eight months back, and the idea is is that people were you know randomly purchasing properties like it's, they felt that they were under a lot of pressure and they they had no way to you know to second guess their their choices. So the rescission period is basically that if you were writing an unconditional offer, that you have three days to rescind your offer. And you will be fined, um, and that fine would be 0.25% of the actual purchase cost. So if you bought a million-dollar house, mm-hmm. you, would, you, would, you would forfeit $2,500. It, the, the, the time for the rescission is three business days. Uh, that starts the day after the offer is firm or accepted, that that offer is accepted. Um, and it does not include Saturdays, Sundays, or holidays. Um, there's a gray area because, of course, now offers, most people are writing offers with subjects, so subject to financing or subject to inspection. Mm-hmm. If that period is longer than three days, do we still take that deposit for the rescission fee? There's a lot of gray area, again, and one of the major problems has always been is, and this is governments of all stripes, I'm not picking on any side of the aisle, but they make these sweeping decisions and nobody bothers to phone the realtors to ask how that's going to work out. The overall health of the industry right now, beyond just interest rates and some of the arguments, the, the some of the the points that you've made here uh, during our conversation, um, it, it, has there been a shakeout in the industry as well in regards to loss of real estate agents and some of them just walking away? Because it is, if, if you've been established, uh, you have clientele that I understand, but there has to be some shakeout. I would I would assume in the industry as well at this moment. I mean, there are, there always are in, like in, in tougher markets than, than than better markets. But I will say that there was a lot of realtors that were starting off when the market was on you know on fire. Mm-hmm. And when you're when you're starting the, in the market, you're usually working with buyers. And when you're working in, with buyers in a seller's market, you know you're not necessarily making any money either because you're writing offers and offers and offers and offers. And you know if there's ten fifteen offers on the table, your odds are one in ten and fifteen. So. Um, it's the thing is that I think that, and I, I know the general public believes this. Um, it's, I mean, who, who I'm not, who am I kidding? That they think that we're sitting around like this is the easiest job in the world. Being a realtor is not an easy job. We don't get paid until a transaction actually closes. So we can spend months and months and months looking with somebody or listing a property and all the expenses that are incurred by that. And the buyer, the prospective buyer or the prospective seller can change their mind and they're not out of pocket. A lawyer, an accountant, a tax attorney, all those people, they're paid by the hour. Realtors, it's, it's hand-to-mouth. So it will shake out the industry a little bit. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, people that are, are, are doing this as a serious job, they're going to be fine. Yeah, Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. Interesting to challenge. Interesting to see what the industry is going through right now with the new strata changes and, of course, the federal foreign investor tax that's coming in bonkers. as well. It, it's bonkers. It is very, very interesting. Thank you so much for your time. 
No problem. Well, let's focus on the park board, uh, this segment. Now, the controversial bike lane that has been in place on Stanley uh, Stanley Park Drive for much of the past few years will go away over the next few weeks. The changes will be among many you will probably hear about uh, as ABC Vancouver begins to implement policies it had promised during the election campaign uh, in September and October. Joining us now to discuss what those changes will look like is Scott Jensen, the chair of the Vancouver Park Board. Scott, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for making time for me. Well, lots to talk about. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the bike lanes first and foremost in Stanley Park. Uh, Where are we in regards to that conversation and what can we expect in the next few weeks? Uh, So on uh, December 5th, uh, we will be presenting a motion uh, to the board that's going to direct uh, the staff, the the parks and and recreation staff um, to restore um, to as much as pre-COVID traffic and parking configuration on Stanley Park Drive um, in time for the upcoming holiday season. Now, um, with that, we are going to be reported, the Park Board is going to report back to us on or before December 15th to update us on those actions. So um, I know there are lots of concerns from the cycling community that um, actions are going to be taken without consideration for their safety, but certainly... Um, the cycling community and all the users that come into our park, we, we consider their safety as, as paramount. And so part of that reporting back to us is to ensure that as we transition this temporary lane into a permanent structure, um, that uh, it's done in a safe and, and responsible manner. And how long will the process to, to come up with a, a permanent des- redesign for the cyclists, how long will that take, do you think? Well, we are going to go back to directing staff. We have, uh, we're going to redirect them in, in regards to um, making the, the current mobility study, moving that towards a, a comprehensive strategy as a planning tool that, that can deliver this permanent cycling lane or circ- uh, dedicated cycling infrastructure in the park. And, and they're going to report back to us uh, on or before early February of, of 2023. So, again, we've looked at the, what is currently in the mobility study, and there's been a lot of uh, information that is, is driving our decisions into making, um, moving forward with this step now. And, again, we, um, we are going to take into account you know, what uh, the engineers and the staff of the park board are, are going to be uh, providing back to us at that report. Um, but, again, the, the goal here is, is to ensure that, you know, vehicle access into the park and, and vehicle access into uh, parking spaces throughout the park and, and tour bus access into the park is, is returned to what we saw um, uh, pre-COVID. But we also want to recognize that, that uh, the, the Stanley Park Drive bike lane was a success and, and we want to make sure that uh, moving forward that we are providing a balanced approach that, that provides um, access to the park to all different types of users. Speaking of access, um, one of the other issues that certainly we've talked about on this show has been the Stanley Park train. Uh, A lot of parents and families have loved that train, obviously not in use this Christmas uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, First and foremost, uh, can we see, uh, do do you expect that train to be repaired and when do you think that repair would happen to the point that it can be in service again? Well, let me start first with a very quick plug that uh, yesterday we kicked off the, the bright night in Stanley Park 
um, and it is a wonderful event. It's a fundraiser for the um, the Burn Fund, um, hosted by the fire the Professional Firefighters Association. Um, we really encourage as many um, you know visitors to to come to Stanley Park to walk through that area uh, to donate to the Burn Fund. Um, so again. Um, the Stanley Park Bright Nights is on. Um, it is missing the train this year, but it is still a wonderful holiday event. Um, for us, we are, are getting information back from the park board in regards to the status of, of the train and the track. Um, our intent is to um, get the train running as soon as possible. Uh, we know how many people look forward to uh, visiting uh, during the holiday seasons, whether that's Easter, um, Halloween, or Christmas, and, and, and look forward to that ride. Um, so it is our intent to, to get that back on, on and to fix it as soon as possible. That being said, um, again, we are going to be uh, very thoughtful in regards to our decision-making and, and ensure that you know, we're making the right decision for Vancouver rights um, with the thoughts to you know, maintaining uh, a good fiscal plan Mm-hmm. Now, this is obviously prior to uh, you and your ABC colleagues being elected, but do you think it was a view, the decision to not have it uh, repaired and ready for Christmas as a failure uh, in regards to the obligations and probably expectations of taxpayers? Um, I, I can't speak to that. I, I will say that um, throughout the city, there was a lot of disappointment in, in, the, in the Stanley Park train not being operational. Um, when I was uh, campaigning, uh, it was front and center on, on so many doorsteps that people were saying that, you know, at that point in time, it was in regards to the Halloween uh, train and uh, or the festivities at, at, uh, for Halloween. And so, you know, for us hearing uh, that disappointment um, and, and, you know, for myself feeling that disappointment, um, you know, it really is driving our direction moving forward, which is um, to bring this back to what it was, um, you know, even just last Christmas. I, you know, I went there with my family last Christmas. You know, it was one of those highlights of, of the holiday season to bring everyone together to get on the train and go around. And, and so, um, you know, we feel that and, and we know that. And so that's, again, driving our decision uh, to get that train back up and operational. Um, Scott, you know, when you look at the Vancouver Park Board, it's very unique in the sense that it's a political entity that, you know, for its budget, it generates half of its revenue uh, from its businesses, which is concessions from the very businesses that are there, from rentals. Um, but at the same time, because of that uh, previous decision when it comes to the bike lane, many people felt that it wasn't the best place to visit if you're in a vehicle. It, has that impacted revenue? Well, certainly it has uh affected the revenue in regards to uh, the Stanley Park train. And we've noticed that in our budget uh, and has made the current budget uh, cycle that we're uh, in right now very difficult to ensure that we can um, you know, meet the needs of Vancouverites. And so for us, we need to, to get back to um, generating revenue with, within Stanley Park as, as one of our many um, parks that, that have that opportunity. And, and further throughout Stanley Park, uh, you know, we want to ensure that as people visit that they can stop and, and, and stay um, and to do so we need to ensure that there is, is, is adequate parking throughout the park. We also want to ensure that uh, the tour bus operators can get into the park and get out of the park in, in a very um, timely manner uh, so that uh, you know guests can come and visit from around the world. Uh, we do know that the concession at the totem poles within Stanley Park is the highest uh, revenue generator in this in park board uh, f- and it's because so many people come there and, and they want to 
bring home something that that really symbolizes you know this the experience within Stanley Park uh, and then we know that uh, up at Prospect Point um, you know that the Prospect Point Cafe you know currently is closed but you know we would like to see that that open reopen in in the spring and and welcome back more and more of, of their, their customers and and again making the 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 park experience that much better for everybody you know obviously you and your colleagues want to sort of restore uh, Stanley Park back to its pre-COVID traffic and parking configuration. We've talked about the train uh, itself. We talked about revenue that has been lost because of the previous decision that was made. And is it fair to say this is a not just a political change, but a cultural shift that you want to see or you're trying to um, uh, at least bring into the park board itself uh, in regards to the changes that need, need to happen? It is it is a cultural change, is it not? I think there has been a, a lot happening since since COVID, and ultimately, you know, our goal is to to uh, revitalize our parks in the manner that they were pre-COVID. And you know, we all have experiences of going down to Stanley Park or going to to one of the many beaches, using the concession stand and enjoying the experience where, wherever that is across the city. You know, enjoying one of our, our one of the many park board parks. You know, that's the excitement. You know, we we've seen that before. So, you know, we want to go back to, you know, that, that excitement that, that was there like 2016, 2015. You know, we, we all have great memories of visiting our parks and, and going to, the, you know, the pools and, and all the other amenities that we have throughout the city. So, um, yes, it, it is about us, you know, making our parks more vibrant, more fun, and also provide more services. You know, when you go to the park and you, and you want a, a bottle of water, you know, you should be able to, to access that from one of the, the concession stands, um, and, and, and that's what we're looking to do. These previous decisions, any idea, I mean, if, if there is a revenue shortfall, uh, like you said, for a bottle of water and, and many people buying other um, gifts there, you're talking about the, just the gift shop alone, but the shortfall, mm-hmm. let's say if there is a revenue shortfall, that has to be eventually covered by City Hall, which means taxpayers co- uh, have to cover that revenue drop. And, and, and in many ways, the decisions that were made before, this has led to perhaps a greater reliance uh, on that subsidy from taxpayers when revenue could have been raised, or at least at le- very much uh, the revenue has been impacted by these decisions. Well, and, and as you said for earlier, is that uh, you know we, we generate revenue within our parks, almost 50% of the park board budget is from uh, you know, the revenue streams that we generate. You know, when we're looking at uh, a lack of, of, of access and, and a shortfall, that affects our bottom line, and, and that means we might have to raise our fees. And so, you know, these are really difficult decisions. And, you know, I, I often say that, you know, we would rather people willingly part with their money by going to these events and, 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 and participating in, in, in purchasing things that they want, and, and, and it's a desire that they want to do that, rather than um, having them have these charges levied against them. Sorry. <laughs> At, uh you know, in the through their taxes. So, you know, everyone is reluctant to, to want to pay their taxes, but it does go to great things. <laughs> but uh, it, it's so much easier when people are buying um, souvenirs or, um, you know, access to, or, you know, using the concession stand. So, again, we want to see, we want to generate better revenue for our, within our parks, and that money will then be reinvested um, into better facilities and also for offsetting costs for people that are having challenges uh, financially. So, you know, we have our, our passes that help that. So, again, that's what we're looking forward to doing. Now, that horn probably says end of interview, but I w- I've got to ask you one more question before, <laughs> before we okay. go here. And that's a specific to, to the issue of alcohol consumption uh, in Vancouver parks. Just want to clarify that. So that 
program will become permanent i'm going to in in 2023 um in in 2023 yes uh, so in the beginning of, of quarter two we are going to initiate the process to make uh, the alcohol and parks program permanent in year round also at the end of quarter one we are directing the park board to report back in regards to creating a pilot project for responsible consumption of alcohol on either an appropriate Vancouver beach or on beaches. And these are where adequate facilities exist to support such a program. And that's coming in, as you say, uh, the second quarter of 2022. That's also, so that would be permanent legal alcohol consumption at 22 park locations plus the beaches. Yes, and the the beaches will be a pilot. So um, again, we're going to ensure that that is done um, with uh, the the proper uh, supports uh, to ensure that it is done properly. Scott, thank you so much for your time. I know you've got a busy schedule uh, today. Really appreciate you updating us on the goings-on at Park Board and look forward to having you on the show again. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you for making the time for me today. Have a great day. The winner to organize the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. Thirty-two have become two. There can only be one world champion. Road to the World Cup. Hey, welcome back to the show. Well, Canadian soccer fans were left disappointed with the national team's two-one loss to Morocco today. But they're also filled with optimism with the team's chances uh, in World Cup 2026, which Canada will co-host. And of course, we'll have some games here in Vancouver. Canada played with pride today as it had no chance of moving on to the knockout round in its first World Cup appearance since 1986. But fans said the team showed uh, it belonged on soccer's biggest stage. And they expect the country to be stronger for the next tournament, which will include 10 games, of course, right here on Canadian soil. So at least five, maybe even six games right here. Uh, in Vancouver. Now, one of those people in the stands today was Delta resident Francis Dos Santos. He joins us now from Qatar. Francis, thank you for speaking to us today. Yeah, you bet, Jazz. Thank you for having me, buddy. What was it like being at the game today with Canada and Morocco? So being at the game today, it started off a little bit bad. The Qatarian police, I don't know for what reason, held up thousands and thousands of fans. I actually missed the first 40, the first half of the game. Um, I'm not sure the reason yet. I only caught the second half. As soon as I got in there, though, man, it was buzzing. The whole stadium was on fire. So I just want to get back to, for a moment, you obviously bought tickets for the game, but you missed half of it because uh, it was just, was it a crowd situation or was it uh, they were just holding people? They haven't told you why they were holding, holding you or thousands of Canadians back and fans? Nobody knows yet. So I'm still yet to find out what happened there. I arrived, of course, 20 minutes earlier before the match. And yeah, man, they held up thousands and thousands of fans at the entrance gates. Police weren't telling us why. We finally got through. By the time I got to my seats, uh, it was halftime, unfortunately. I'm not sure it could have been a problem with the ticketing like technology. I'm, I'm looking forward to finding that out. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, as you say, uh, you got there, uh, you were there for the second half. It, the feeling must have been electric just to to know you're watching uh you know your nation's team uh um uh, playing morocco 
Yeah, it was really, it was really cool, man. Like I said, the whole stadium was on fire. It was, the whole stadium was red and uh, people were going crazy. At that time, at halftime, it was 2-1. So we were kind of on the edge of our seats. I had this incredible seat. I was on row B. So I was kind of like right to the side of the net. Yeah, no, it was amazing, man. Canada, they were doing amazing. Got a little bit unlucky at times and it's yeah. all good. Quite inspiring stuff. Though. Yeah, and I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, I think that's, that's the thing. They, they have played inspiring soccer. Uh, they didn't embarrass themselves. They didn't win, but they didn't embarrass themselves either. They did a fabulous job. Particularly, I really enjoyed the first game with Belgium. They were competitive uh, right to the end, which is which is so very important. Now, this isn't your first game, is it? I mean, you, you've watched a few games there. Yeah, so today was my seventh match. Um, tomorrow, I have my last one. I got Portugal tomorrow, but... My first Canada match was against Croatia there. Now, are you there uh, in Qatar, obviously, to watch the game, but do you uh, sort of know the area well? Qatar, this is my first time here in this country. The Middle East, I do a lot of work in Dubai, sports trainer, so that's my trade. And um, a few times a year, I travel to Dubai, but here in Qatar, this is my first time. Uh, Your thoughts on the next World Cup? It'll be, of course, in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. We're we're sort of sharing the bid. Uh, What do you think, not just hosting some of the games here in Vancouver, but, but just the fact that the World Cup is returning to North America, Canada will be a part of that, of course. What do you think it's meant for soccer overall in regards to the development of the sport? Canadian soccer has been slowly developing over the years, but especially with this men's national team, it's really put us on the map. And the fact that now they're bringing it back home and we get to witness some World Cup soccer back in Vancouver. It's uh, really inspiring for the youth. Um, it, it really motivates them and I'm really looking forward to attending again, especially after this experience. It's been amazing. Well, Francis, uh, uh, I know you're enjoying yourself and uh, you'll be off to uh, uh, match number eight tomorrow. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy uh, your evening in Qatar and uh, look forward to chatting you with you when you get back. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jazz, for having me on, man. I look forward to seeing you soon. That was Francis Dos Santos. Uh, he is a Delta resident, and as he said, he's in Qatar, and uh, he's watched seven games so far, his first Canadian game, and he's got one more to go, so eight World Cup games for him, and uh, you, know, <laughs> you pay for a, a ticket, and uh, you don't, you miss half the game. So that would be quite disappointing, but he, I mean, he had a great attitude, didn't he, Ryan? <laughs> I mean, super positive. Super positive. The Canadian fans are all still su- super positive, but I got to say again, like, you're missing half the game. I know. Like, I, they didn't get the, I mean, we, uh, the Vancouver mayor was on uh, this show as well. I and, bet he didn't miss half the game. Well, he didn't, but he did mention that there were some ticketing, ticketing yeah, issues. Yeah, he did. He did. And uh, the fact that uh, uh, Francis here from Delta missed half of it, I'd be really annoyed when you fly all the way to Qatar to watch uh, your team play. But like I said, he's got uh, eight games in total he's going he's gonna to watch. Let's talk a little bit about the Canadians. Yes, they didn't win. Uh, they got a goal in the second game. How would you describe their overall performance uh, uh, during this tournament? You know, if you're Canada, I think you got to be proud. Uh, it was just sort of the like the, the uh, they qualified jazz. That was the biggest thing was that they qualified. Yeah, I mean, that, and that, their showing wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. I I got uh, the first game was what disappointed me, and it wasn't their performance. I just felt with that performance they should have won. Yeah, and Belgium got away with one. There. That first half, Canada dominated Belgium. They hemmed them into their own zone. They had the early penalty. If Alfonso Davies puts that in, it not only changes the whole complexion of just that one game, but the whole tournament for Canada as well. Because if they win that game, all of a sudden that's three points, 
going against Croatia, you get a little bit more confidence. Then going against Morocco again, again, a lot of people were saying Morocco is the easy game. That's a game Canada could win. And you know, a lot of these teams are really good. If you're in the World Cup, you're not like a pushover team. No, I mean that, that's the thing. I mean you're seeing um, sort of non-traditional teams do well. Japan uh, is, is is doing well. Um, uh, even the United States, the go they, they have I think they haven't been to the second round, the knockout round since 2014. Yeah, and they You're qualified just, this year. So it's yeah. good to see you know the U.S. and some Asian countries do well beyond just European countries in South America. So I think in that sense, you're seeing some changes. I mean, you know it's going to be slow. The powerhouses are still going to be the powerhouses, but it's still great to see some of these countries do well. Yeah, I think what we saw with Canada is again they didn't look out of place against Belgium. They got. Totally outclassed against Croatia. Yeah, they got thumped against Morocco. It was kind of fifty-fifty. Like they, they still look like they did belong. Like they scored that early goal against Croatia as well. And that's the biggest takeaway here for me is that Canada looked like they belonged. This was their first World Cup since nineteen eighty-six here, and they're going to be in there again in the next one. And they just got to keep building on all this momentum here. Like in nineteen, and sorry, in twenty twenty-six. Like, what's the goal now? Is to well, hey, win a game. We scored That's a right. goal. Now it's time to win a game. And and I think for our listeners, got to remind remind them that uh, if your country is hosting or co-hosting the game, your team automatically. Uh, uh, automatically automatic yes. qualify. That's why Qatar was playing yes. uh, in, in this tournament, and now with three countries co-hosting, so the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. We'll all, all be at the 2026 World Cup, right? Yeah, and the tournament, there's going to be 48 teams. So it's going to expand from 32 to 48. More teams get in. How's it going to deal with the quality of the games we're going to see? I mean, who knows? You might see some teams that don't quite necessarily belong in well, the tournament. We'll learn that very quickly. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. If you're the World Cup, then start acting it's a good like way the World to, Cup. It is a good way to sort of grow the, the uh, game here because we kind of see the same countries over and over again, right? Yeah. Except for Italy this year. Yeah, it, that's, it's a weird World Cup without Italy. But I, I also it, think... Is since, it, though? <laughs> I think it is. I always like their play, although they <laughs> didn't qualify, so that says something about their play. But you know what? You know, 60% of humanity lives in Asia. It wouldn't hurt to have a few more Asian nations uh, and it can hopefully build their... Uh, and help them develop uh, uh, their game and some of their training programs as well. But the fact that uh, Canada has done so well, look, it's amazing to me that you look at the team, I think it's seven players from uh, the Bank, uh, Toronto suburb of Brampton. Yeah, a lot uh, of That's the a huge, huge population. Yeah. Just immigrant kids that are really bringing a different perspective and view to the game. And I'm sure we're going to see more of them coming out of Vancouver as well. And that's just the nature of of, 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 uh, of, of our country. So I, I just think it's a fabulous, fabulous uh, tournament in the sense that it will help grow the game of soccer right yeah, here in Canada. Overall, tournament, a success, but there were games where Canada should have done better and they should have come away with at least one win here and kind of challenged for that second spot uh, into or out of the uh, group stage. And I did find some great commentary that just sort of summed up uh, Canada's uh, World Cup here. Canada's World Cup has come to an end. Canada have lost all their games at the World Cup. <laughs> you got to get creative when you're not the rights holder here, right? <laughs> That's about it. I, but you know what? You got to be optimistic, and I'm so glad we were there. And we're going to be there in 2026, and uh, it'll be a lot of fun. Thank you so much. No problem. All right, that's our Ryan Lee Hall talking a little bit about the World Cup. He's a big fan, just like myself. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.